Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 5 to 9 this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 says, For he did not subject the angels, for he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we do pray today that you would, Lord, show us the greatness of Christ, Lord, that we might see him, Lord, as he is, by faith, Lord, no longer made a little lower than the angels, but now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Lord, may we see that our only way of salvation is through faith in him, Lord, only by his tasting death for us can we be made right in your sight. So, Lord, we pray that we would put our faith in him and that we would cling to Christ in all things. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, last week we examined the opening verses of chapter 2 where the apostle gave the first warning in the book of Hebrews. And there he issued a serious warning showing the dangers that will come upon us if we abandon Christ. And he did this by way of comparison. Comparing the words spoken to us in these last days with the word delivered through angels to Moses that was delivered to the children of Israel. Right? When God revealed the law to Israel, he used 10,000 of his holy ones in order to provide additional confirmation of its seriousness. Right? The word delivered was not a mere suggestion, but was to be taken with the utmost seriousness. The word was unalterable. No man, no angel had the authority to alter a single word from the law of Moses. It also contained, he said, just penalties that were to be implemented for every transgression or disobedience of the word delivered through angels. They had to listen carefully and closely follow the law of Moses, lest they receive the just penalty for some violation of the law. Well, in the same way, we must approach the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they would not escape a just penalty, if they drifted away from the law of Moses, then how will we escape if we drift away from the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is impossible. All those who reject or neglect the gospel will suffer the penalty of everlasting destruction in the lake of fire. So we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. For the word we have heard did not come through angels, but came through the Son of God, who has come down to earth, taking on human flesh, and has spoken to us with clarity and with finality. The only way of salvation was declared with clarity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It was spoken through the Lord. Then it was confirmed by his apostles, and then God testified with them through signs, wonders, various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. God has confirmed without any doubt that the only means of salvation, the only way we can be reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we better not Forsake him, or we will not escape the judgment of God. This is the point he is stressing throughout the book of Hebrews. The preeminence of our Lord Jesus Christ. This truth he has already confirmed, and now he will confirm it still more in his relationship or comparison 
to the angels. So let's pick up in verse 5 this morning. There it says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. Here he's already shown that Jesus is superior to angels because he has inherited a name that is much better than they. This was his argument in chapter 1. Which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. God the Father never addressed any angel in that capacity, but only his son, only the Lord Jesus Christ. The angels are his messengers. They are his ministers, but they are not his only begotten son and are never addressed with such a title of glory and honor. This is the point he made in chapter 1, verses 5 to 14. Now he returns to that same line of reasoning, showing something that is unique and peculiar to Jesus. Just as he never said to any of the angels, you are my son, so also the Father has not subjected the world to come to angels. When did God ever do that? And when did God ever make that promise to the angels? Did God ever put all things under the feet of angels? No, he has not done this at all. But he has put everything in subjection to who? To Jesus Christ, including the angels. So if the angels and all creation are in subjection to Christ, then he must by necessity be far greater than they. And the word spoken directly by him must be paid much closer attention to than the word delivered through the intermediary of an angel. Verse 6. Here he proves it by quoting from the Old Testament. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? Here again, he proves his argument by going to the Old Testament scriptures. This concept of subjecting all things to Christ is not a new novel concept that was introduced and discovered only in the New Testament after the time of Christ. But rather, this truth was foretold many years ago by the holy prophets. David, roughly 900 years before the Incarnation, predicted by the Holy Spirit that all things would be put in subjection to Jesus Christ. And in this, he's showing the unity of God's word. What was announced in the Old Testament by the prophets was accomplished in the person and work of Christ. And now it is being proclaimed by his apostles. There is perfect unity in the purpose and plan of God. And here he quotes specifically from Psalm 8 verses 4 to 6 which he introduces in a way that may seem at first glance to be odd or peculiar because he says, one has testified somewhere. Now we might think maybe he doesn't know his Bible very well. Maybe he's loosely and strangely quoting from the Old Testament. He's careless about it. it he's ignorant of the Bible. He doesn't know where it's from and he doesn't know who wrote the song. But obviously from our reading of the book of Hebrews, it is clear that the apostle is very well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, that he knows the Bible very, very well. He knows precisely where this is found, but he says it in this way in order to emphasize the divine origin of scripture, the divine origin of scripture. Notice chapter 3, verse 7, what, the way he introduces the quotation from Psalm 95 here. He says, just as the Holy Spirit says. There are times in the New Testament where they will quote the prophet, and they'll say, as Isaiah said, as Hosea said, as David said. But here he's emphasizing the divine origin of Scripture. And that is why in our passage he says that one has testified somewhere. 
one prophet led by the Holy Spirit of God testified concerning these things. The word of the prophet is a divine testimony concerning spiritual truth, concerning salvation. So we should not quickly or rashly dismiss the testimony of the Holy Spirit, but we must give it great consideration. The Old Testament scriptures are giving to us many testimonies concerning salvation through Jesus Christ. And here the testimony is concerning Jesus and the subjection of the world to come to him. Now, what is the content of this testimony? Let's look back to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, and we'll read it in its entirety, and then we'll also sing it after a while. But Psalm 8, notice what it says. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, when we read Psalm 8 at first glance, Right, a cursory reading of Psalm 8, one might think that the prophet is talking about mankind in general. Some say he's talking about Adam in his original state. Others say that he's talking about mankind after the fall. Still others say he's talking about redeemed man, the man that will be redeemed. But many would say that David is musing either about himself or about mankind in general, but not prophesying about the Messiah. Primarily and originally, it's about David and mankind, and then only secondarily and spiritually is it about Jesus as the Christ. However, this is not the interpretation of the prophet. Obviously, the apostle, who is led by the Holy Spirit, is telling us that this psalm has its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The psalm is primarily and principally about Christ. He is the subject of Psalm 8 from the beginning to the end. And Christ is the one that David is thinking about. That is who is on his mind when he writes Psalm 8. Not himself and not mankind in general. And not only is this the interpretation of the apostle, this is also the way that Jesus interpreted this psalm during the time of his ministry. Matthew 21. Matthew 21, Jesus quotes from the opening part of the psalm, Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, which is not quoted in our passage in Hebrews. But notice Matthew 21, verse 14. It says, And the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Here, Jesus quotes Psalm 8 2, 
in order to vindicate his children against the slander of his enemies. And the way he quotes the passage shows that this was not some uncommon, bizarre interpretation, but rather this was what was generally believed. He's saying to them, why are you shocked? Why are you amazed that my children are praising me? You know Psalm 8. You know that it is messianic. You know that when the Messiah appears, his children will praise him. You claim to love the scriptures, but now you're indignant with me when they're being fulfilled in your very presence. Jesus took Psalm 8 as messianic. The apostle is, who is writing Hebrews takes Psalm 8 as a messianic psalm. So I am taking it as a messianic psalm, regardless of what the modern scholar, the liberal unbelieving scholar, whatever they say, let's stick to the interpretation found in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6 says, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? What is man? When he says this, he's not referring to just any man. He's not referring to a mere man, but he tells us the man that he's talking about. And who is the man that is on his mind? It's the son of man. And who is the son of man? Well, is not the son of man the favorite title used by our Lord Jesus Christ for himself? The most common title he uses to refer to himself as the Christ or as the Messiah is the son of man. And the Old Testament refers to the Messiah in many different ways. And one of those titles is Son of Man. This comes in a chief text from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 verses 13 to 14. Daniel 7, 13. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Here, he is the son of man, because he has a human nature like us. And in this way, Jesus is like us. But he's also unique and not like us. He's different from us because he receives from the Ancient of Days an eternal kingdom denoting his divinity. For he is both fully God and fully man in one person, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Jews knew that the Son of Man was coming into the world. They knew that the Old Testament scriptures predicted his person and his work. Even the common people knew and believed this. It's not just the scholars, the intellectual, the Bible teachers. Even the commoners knew that the Son of Man was coming into the world and that he was the one that would bring salvation. Notice John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verses 35 to 41. John 9, verses 35 to 41. says, But Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. 
And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sinned. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Here, Jesus asked this blind man who had been healed, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The Son of Man. And the blind man doesn't say, Son of Man, what are you talking about? Who is it? What, what, what is this? What are you referring to? I've never heard of that before. He knows that the Son of Man is coming into the world. He knows that salvation will come through him. He already believes and knows that the Son of Man will appear. What he doesn't know is the specific person. Who is this Son of Man? Where is he? Point him out to me that I might see him and I might know him. And that's when Jesus says, you have seen him and I'm the one talking to you. The one talking to you is the Son of Man. This is also confirmed in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. 1 Peter 1, verse 10. It says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. They wanted to know what person and the time the Spirit of Christ was indicating to them the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They knew about the Christ. They knew about his sufferings. They knew about his glories. But they wanted to know who is the person and when will he appear, right? What time, what person is it so that we might see him? And this is why John the Baptist is seen as his forerunner, telling the people, that man over there, the one I'm pointing to, that is the Messiah, that is the Christ, that is the one that you should put your hope in. Well, in Psalm 8, the prophet David is thinking about the coming Christ, reflecting on his human nature during the time of his humiliation, Right From the incarnation of Christ until his glorification, he was clothed with humility. So what is this man that you are mindful of him? Right, Who is he that you take notice of him? This is as Jesus says in Psalm 22, verse 6. There, by the spirit of prophecy, Jesus says, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Right? In what way was Jesus a worm and not a man? In terms of his sufferings, in terms of his humiliation. When people saw him in this way, that's what David is contemplating. The humiliation, the sufferings of Christ. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Because it appears as if God doesn't care for him, though that is not the case at all. Verse 7, you have made him for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. Now, you might notice in verse 7 that when I read from Psalm 8 in my translation, the NASB, it says, you have made him for a little while lower than God. And the Hebrew word is the word Elohim, which is many times, it is translated God, but it is not exclusively used in reference to the true God or even to false gods. But there are times when the term is used in relationship to rulers of men because of the power and authority granted to them by God. 
And it also can be used to refer to angels. And the context tells us what it is referring to. Well, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, there the apostle is providing the translation. He's giving to us the true meaning of Psalm 8. This is what it means when it says, you made him for a little while lower than God. What he's talking about is the angels. And some translations will translate it as angels in Psalm 8 because of what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7. So that's why there is that discrepancy or apparent discrepancy between Psalm 8 in the Hebrew and Hebrews chapter 2 in its quotation of Psalm 8. Well, during his life, during his time on earth, Jesus, according to his human nature, was for a little while lower than the angels. He took on a human nature like ours, one that was subjected to weakness, to sufferings, to humility, and even to death. This is what he means that he was for a little while made lower than the angels. Because our nature as men in our humble state, in our weak state, is lower than the nature of the angels. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. And when Jesus came in his incarnation, he had a body like we have right now. One that is subjected to weakness yet without sin. Hebrews 2.14, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil. In terms of glory and honor, the nature of an angel is superior to the nature of a man. Angels are not subjected to weakness. Angels do not get hungry. Angels do not get thirsty. Angels do not grow weary. Angels do not need sleep in order to be refreshed. Angels are not subjected to the miseries of this world. Angels are in the presence of God. Angels do not die. But the human nature obtained by Jesus at his incarnation was subjected to all of our weaknesses. What we experience as men in this life. All of the weakness, all of the frailty was known to Jesus with the exception he was without sin. He was like us in every way except without sin. He never sinned, but his human nature was a nature of weakness. Hebrews 2.17 says, Hebrews 2.17, He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. And also Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. This is what Jesus experienced. The person of Jesus Christ was made for a little while lower than the angels. From the time of his incarnation to the time of his resurrection. His nature as a man was lower than angels. And here he says, for a little while, meaning for a limited duration of time, he was made lower than the angels. And this was necessary in order to secure our redemption. It says in Luke 24, 26, 
Luke 24, 26. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He explained to them things related to his sufferings and things related to his glory, showing that it was necessary. The prophets predicted the temporary sufferings followed by the eternal glorification of Christ. And this is what Psalm 8 is teaching. For a little while, he was made lower than the angels. This refers to the sufferings of Christ, to his humiliation. But now at his glorification, you have crowned him with glory and honor and appointed him over the works of your hands. After his suffering, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor as the Christ, as the God-man, and he is raised up to this position of highest honor in the person of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." At his resurrection, at his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. God predicted that his son, the Lord Christ, would come into the world, that he would suffer and that he would die on the cross, that he would be raised from the dead, and that he would be exalted to the position of highest honor. God the Father has put all things in subjection to Jesus Christ. All things are under his feet. And this is why this psalm must be true, it can only be true, of Jesus Christ. For when were all things in subjection to Adam, even in his innocence? And when have all things been subjected to fallen mankind? And when have all things been subjected to redeemed mankind? This is only true of Jesus Christ. And it does become true of us only by virtue of our union with Christ, in that he is our head and we are his body. But principally and primarily, it is about Jesus Christ. God has subjected all things only to him. All things, all created things, the entire world, the fullness of it, the heavenly beings themselves, All of them are subjected to Christ. Even the holy angels are subjected to Christ. All things are under his feet. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 28. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead 
the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, who, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who has subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. This is at his glorification. God subjected all things to Jesus Christ. And this is as Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Well, by virtue of this, that God has put everything under his feet. This is true. Now, all things are subjected to Christ. Yet, what we see and what we experience practically, we do not yet see it. So in a true sense, the world is subjected to Christ. Because nothing happens outside of his control, outside of his will. And all things are coming about according to his perfect will. But in our practical daily experience, we do not yet see all things subjected to him in the full sense. <clears throat> Has every knee in the world bowed to Christ yet? Has every tongue confessed to Christ that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father? This hasn't happened yet, but is it going to happen in due time? It absolutely will. And everything necessary for this to be brought about has already been accomplished. This is why the apostle says, we do not yet see all things in subjection to him. In a true sense, all things are under his control. But as we live day to day in this world, we do not yet see with our eyes, in our experiences, the world subjected completely to Christ. Because it's still filled with devils. It's filled with many sinners and wicked men. It, we all still have the flesh that we're contending with that is not subjected in the full and final sense to Christ. But all these things are still in the world. The world is filled with many sins that are being committed every day. But it will be subjected to Christ in the full and final sense. One day. We don't yet see it with our eyes. But what do we see? What do we see by faith that gives us hope during the time of our sojourning? Notice verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who for a little while was lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Though, again, we do not see in our experience all things subjected to him, we do, by faith, see Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of God. And we understand and we contemplate, as the prophet did in Psalm 8, that he, the Christ, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, we see and understand that the promised Christ was indeed Jesus of Nazareth who, because of the suffering of death, is now crowned with glory and honor. His sufferings that culminated in his death 
are connected to his glory and his honor. You cannot have the glorious Christ without first having the suffering Christ. The pathway to glory and honor ordained by God the Father for Jesus Christ was through the suffering of death. This is as we read earlier in Philippians 2, 8-9. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Because he was obedient to the point of death, God has highly exalted him. God has subjected all things to him because of his obedience to the suffering of death. It says in Romans 8, 16 to 17, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. He suffered and then was glorified. We must suffer and then enter into glory with him. And this was the problem with so many of the Jews during the time of Christ. And this remains the problem today with many of the so-called Christians today. People want a glorious Christ. They want an exalted Christ. They want a prosperous Christ, which is true in a sense. I want a glorious Christ. I want a prosperous Christ. I want an exalted Christ. But what was the means that God ordained for Christ to achieve this, for him to enter into this glorious state? How did he obtain this exalted position? Through the suffering of death. And that's what people don't want. They do not want a humble Christ. They don't want a suffering Christ. They want a Christ to bless them and to cause them to prosper, but they do not want a Christ of shame and suffering. But according to Romans 8, we cannot share in his glory without first sharing in his sufferings. We cannot be exalted with Christ if we do not first die with Christ. Everyone wants the glory, but very few want the suffering of death. But these go hand in hand. The glory is born out of the suffering. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It says in Romans chapter 4, His death and resurrection go together. How can he rise for our justification if he is not first put to death for our trespasses? They go together. The suffering of death is necessary because we are by nature under the slavery of death. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same thing, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We were slaves to death. We were under the power of sin and Satan. And the only way to deliver us from death is by first the suffering of the death, followed by the glory and honor. He descended into death for us, that he might lift us up out of the pit and exalt us as well with glory and honor. And then finally he says, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The sending of the Son, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. What prompted God to do this? What prompted God to send his Son to accomplish this work? Well, he tells us, by the grace of God. 
the grace of God. Salvation is by the grace of God alone. Salvation must be by grace, for we cannot earn it through our own works or through our own efforts. Because of God's grace to us, Jesus tasted death on our behalf. And here he says tasted because it means that he experienced death. He truly died on the cross. He did not swoon. He did not pass out and appear to be dead. His body was not switched out with someone else. It was not a case of mistaken identity. But Jesus Christ was truly nailed to the tree. And there he suffered and died on the cross. And when he died, he tasted death. Meaning he had a temporary experience of death. His death was not full and final, but only momentarily did he die. Only for three days. And then what happened to him? He was raised to new life. This is as is predicted in Psalm 16. Psalm 16, 9 to 11. Psalm 16, verse 9. says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. His death was only for a short time. Just for three days. His body did not undergo decay or corruption. And who did he do this for? Well, here he says he tasted death for everyone. So we have to ask, what does everyone mean? What does it mean in context? Well, it does not mean every single person in the history of the world. It does not mean every single person alive today or every person alive when he died or every person who is alive in the present. But everyone means every one of the elect, every one of his children, every one of his sheep, everyone given to him by the Father. He came to taste death for everyone who he would raise up on the last day. And that's not me reading into the passage. That's not me forcing it to say something it isn't saying. For that is the charge of our critics who teach universal atonement, who would come to a verse like this and say, aha, look, it says it right here. It says that he tasted death for everyone and everyone must mean everyone who has ever existed from Adam to the end of the world. But if we read the rest of the chapter, we will clearly see that in context, the passage itself defines who he means by everyone, who is included in the everyone who Jesus tasted death for. Notice what it says, starting in verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. Many sons to glory. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Is everyone in the history of the world sanctified? No, only the believers are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Is everyone one of his brethren? No. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Meaning, not the physical descendant of Abraham, but the spiritual descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Not all people, but his people, his brethren, his children. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So there, clearly, he has a specific group in mind. A specific group in mind when he is applying this. When he says, taste death for everyone. He calls on, in verse 10, many sons to glory. In verse 11, those who are sanctified. In verse 11, them brethren. In verse 12, my brethren. In verse 12, the congregation. In verse 13, the children whom God has given me. In verse 14, the children. In verse 16, the descendant of Abraham. In verse 17, his brethren. These are the ones that he has tasted death for. And it is by his tasting death for them that results in their salvation. This is the only way that we could be saved. is by Christ coming, taking and tasting death for us. Taking on a body like ours, a human nature like ours in all ways, except without sin. Being made a little while lower than the angels. Tasting death for us, dying, being buried, and then raising from the dead three days later, and now being crowned with glory and honor. And his exaltation is what will result in our exaltation one day, our glorification, and our full and final salvation. And who is the only means to bring this about? Only through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can't abandon him. We must trust in him. We must trust in him or we will not merely taste death. We will have a full meal of death in the lake of fire for all eternity. So let us put our trust in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that you have provided this, Lord, wonderful way in which we could have salvation. Lord, the only way that we could be saved. Lord, knowing that we are subject to slavery all of our life. Lord, in fear of death. Lord, because of our own sin. And Lord, there's nothing that we could do to deliver ourselves. Lord, to free us from this grip of sin and death and slavery. Only by Jesus coming and taking on a nature like ours. Being born of a virgin. Lord, living a, a perfect life. Lord, experiencing all the things that we experience except without sin. Lord, all of our weaknesses and frailty. Lord, our humiliation being made a little while lower than the angels. Lord, only by his ultimately going and tasting death on our behalf can we be brought up out of death and raised to newness of life. So, Father, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we pray that we would put our hope, our faith in him. Lord, that we would cling to him and that we would never turn back. But, Lord, that he would be the object of our thoughts all the time. Lord, help us to now see him sitting at your right hand. Lord, help us to see him who was, again, for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Lord, that we might see that our hope is there in heaven and that his resurrection and his glorification, that that is 
what is our hope for salvation as well. And Lord, may that comfort us during the time of our sojourning in this life. So Lord, increase our faith and help us to believe in these things. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.